The Beer and Pretzel Podcast and Trash Talk Podcast are part of the Buttwide, though, and Podfix Networks. Check them out to hear more content from other great podcasters. Welcome back to the Beer and Pretzel Podcast. My name's Austin, and today I'm joined by Steve D., the creator of Partners, the two-player RPG that Travis and I will be playing very soon as an actual play on this show. Uh, Steve, we get to talk to a bunch of amazing creators from all over the world. Uh, Last week, we talked to a creator based out of Japan and uh, heard that you're based in Australia. So first of all, uh, thanks for coming on the show. And how is life in Australia in the world of tabletop RPGs? Pretty good. We have a lot of really amazing talent um, here. We've been really blessed uh, with Kickstarter giving us a bit more money. So our industry's really, really had a, a big kick in the last five, ten years, um, and doing more and more exciting things, building a, a bit more of an industry as opposed to just a few talented people who have to do freelancing work or things like that. Oh, that's cool. So when you mean Kickstarter gives you a little bit more money, is that because of the conversion rate, or why is that? It's because we can reach audiences that are outside Australia. So there is a, a really growing, again, in the last five, ten years, audience in Australia for, for role-playing games. But we're, we're a small population. We're quite spread out. Um, and it wasn't until crowdfunding came along that you could actually get the money together and find an audience to really you know, make it worthwhile to do any kind of large or even medium-scale printing. Um, you know, it was just... And so there's, there, there is no... I mean, there's been a couple of books over the years, but there is no, until, until say, five years ago, there was no publisher of role-playing games based in Australia. Uh, it just mm. didn't exist. Okay, um, we sense. had a few little games along the way, but you, if you wanted to, to work, you had to work for an, a, a European or an American company. Well, that's awesome to hear, and that's actually a good segue into my first question. Um, Steve, you've been someone that has been working in the RPG world for a little bit now. Um, you've been doing mm-hmm. a lot of work for your own RPGs, but also freelance work for other um, games and also as like a someone who checks out other people's games and gives them uh, creative feedback. Um, since you've been doing this for around 20 years or a bit more, um, can you talk about because the worlds of RPGs have been constantly changing. You were just talking about Kickstarter has done a ton of great things, especially for the creators in um, Australia. So over the last 20 years, where, besides Kickstarter, what are some other great things you've seen happen to this community for indie game creation that maybe weren't there when you first started? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the internet in general has been really, really Im- uh, important for creators of all sorts of artwork the ability to find each other, uh, and also just to provide people with a lot of tools for small levels of publication or, you know, even just yeah, internet publication. I mean, there were there were little zines and there were small games, but what the internet sort of did back, you know, I was I was around and role playing in the you know late eighties, early nineties, and when the internet came along, there were all these small different RPGs that just appeared. Um, because people made games and put them online. And that was really the beginning, I guess, of, of the real kind of indie genre um, because you didn't have to worry about selling even just 100 copies. You could just make a game and just put it on a web page. And we had 
some amazing games pop up then that really made people go, oh, you, you can make games about anything. The Drones was one of the really early ones I remember from the early 90s, which was about, well, maybe mid-90s, which was about um, uh, uh, Jeeves and Worcester, you know, and that was just something that no one had ever really put into print before. And from there, we had just this um, incredible revelation of indie games, which led to the creation of, a, of an actual dialect about play and, and different styles. And there was a creation of a thing called The Forge, um, which was an idea of, of again, of, of a community, not just of getting all these designers together and really encouraging them to publish and print and explore different ideas. And that caused an explosion of ideas as well. Yeah, since then, the, the, the indie scene has sort of gone along in waves and grown in, in different ways. And um, lots of its ideas have bubbled into the mainstream. And there's certainly, I always think that indie and, and mainstream are not always great terms in this in this field anyway um because a rpg sales for the most part are so small you know it's 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 a very cosmetic difference from what we're talking about um i think what we are what we do see now though increasingly is is more and more again through the internet of this cross cross pollination um yes there's still a huge pool and it's got bigger and bigger thanks to the actual play movement of, of the D&D players and the Pathfinder and the sort of edges around there, a couple of, you know, White Wolf games or something, um, or Blades in the Dark, or, you know, in the big pool. But more and more, there's awareness of sort of, once you get away from that, that there isn't really a lot of barriers um, and a lot of difference between someone who makes a really good game and puts it up on the web and someone who makes a really good game and prints it out and sells it at a con. And we're learning that there's a, a sort of a, a, a much more of an interesting tapestry of fields that you can cross over. And once you start away from that big pool, you can go to sort of any kind of um, areas. And that's really encouraging to me to see people who, you know, will will dip into this world and then they'll make, you know, a, a you know, a 300-page complex RPG, and then the next day they'll be making something that fits on a business card, and then they'll be making, an, you know, an RPG that you can only spray on a wall or something. And it's a very beautiful, fertile movement at the moment um, with lots of really interesting ideas. Yeah, that's something I've been loving recently out of this community is that just so many RPGs of so many different genres have been sprouting out. And you've been in this game a lot longer than I have, but even I remember 10 years ago, or I guess 12, 13 years ago when I first started with Dungeons Dragons, the only RPGs that I could find besides Dungeons Dragons were like at the local library. Uh, there was Deadlands, I believe there was White Wolf, and that was pretty much it. Um, but right now there's games all over place and for different people's budgets and small games, huge games, and it's great the revolution of indie RPGs is happening right now. And on that subject, would you say that something like Dungeon Dragons has been extremely helpful to the indie RPG creation community, or at this point with such a huge monopoly on the genre that it has kind of hurt it? I certainly like that is that is the I think probably the 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 million dollar question of the role playing industry, and we just don't know. Um, we there there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of evidence that the rising tide really does lift all boats. We know that the actual play movement potentially, you know, the, things like um, 
I forgot what it's called, the one with Matt Mercer. Critical um, Role. Yeah, Critical Role and a few things like it and Twitch effectively doubled the number of people making playing D&D from between about 2015 and 2017. Like there's just – and it's getting bigger and bigger. There's just an enormous – and there's a subsidiary market of people who don't even play but know D&D and watch D&D. And I don't know. I don't think we have any good figures on how much that's actually trickling down. And that's partly, it's not just because of D&D's cultural imprint. I think it's also partly because of a lot of how people play D&D and how people play RPGs. Um, so much of the game is invisible to the players or is, is eluded away by the GM or by the system. And in many cases, you can compare Dungeons & Dragons to something like, you know, a popular game like Bridge or Poker. You know, in the in in much of the 20th century, you would get together for bridge or poker, but what you were really getting together was was the social experience. And in in D and D, it's there's well, we want to tell a story, we want to tell jokes, we want to pretend to be people, we want to, we all want to do that. And the thing that gets us in the door is that we're doing Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and because it's sort of become that that lingua franca, that you know, there's there's no um, that's very difficult to sort of break through. It becomes the sort of defining element of it. People are like, well, if we're playing role-playing games, we're playing D&D, that they don't see a, a difference. I think in that sense, there isn't a lot of trickle-down, but I don't know if how much of that is that, is that D&D's fault. Um, I think it's partly just a cultural accident. A lot of people get very angry at wizards as if there's some sort of terrifying nightmare corporation that is plotting a way of stealing all their audience. Um, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's helpful. Um, but I do think you can sort of go, yes, there's more play for playing D&D. That doesn't help me. I would like a world where we were better at understanding that D&D is just one of many, many different examples, especially, as I said, as we're getting more experimental and as we're really like, there are so many things that you run into that have been solved by games that are sort of more second or third or fourth age, you know, of, of role-playing games. And D&D is starting to catch up, but it's always about at least 10 years behind. And it would, you know, if, if, even if it were people were playing, I mean, Blades in the Dark and, 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 the apocalypse systems are actually good examples of a, a really of solving lots of those problems, and Cortex and Fate um, are good examples. And if we had more people just getting in at that level, um, I think that would really help. Um, and that's why that's actually something that sort of we'll get to my games eventually. But I'm actually interested in presenting games that don't really look like RPGs as a way of sort of getting to people's brains before they play D and D and trying to sort of make them think differently about what an RPG is. Um, and I think there's actually, there's a lot of things out there that are also, that are similar, that are like RPGs. And um, we can sort of nudge people in different directions. And that actually could be really, really exciting. Um, for example, there's all these board games now like Gloomhaven, but also Sleeping Gods and, and things like that, where there's a huge amount of story as a huge amount of, there's a lot of sort of role playing and there's things very much like an RPG, the new descent. And, you know, you can nudge people like people will be like, well, do you think you'd actually have more fun if you're playing Gloomhaven where you didn't have to have a GM that might be more fun. Or if you're playing Gloomhaven, do you think you maybe should want to play something else where there is a GM? And we might, we might finally find some of these different ways in 
instead of over there in a box is D&D and nobody knows about anything that isn't D&D. No, very well said. And going back on to the subject of your games uh, with partners, which is what Travis and I will be playing very uh, soon. If the episode has not come out at this point by the time the audience listens to this episode, um, I do plan on releasing um, this as a two-part episode, our actual play of partners. But if people have not um, listened to those episodes yet or if they've not come out yet or finished yet, can you give us a pitch of what is Partners all about? And besides its main theme of uh, murder mystery work, police procedures, uh, what makes it strikingly different than something that we've been talking about, Dungeon Dragons? Yeah, so Partners is um, absolutely about murder mysteries. It's also particularly about television murder mysteries and hones in on the particular genre, which is really common in American TV where there's two lead characters and they have banter and one of them is um, a straight shooter. They're, they're buttoned down. They follow the rules and the other person is a little bit strange or different or off the hook. Um, uh, Castle is the classic example or Lucifer. You know, you've got these sensible female detectives who partnered up with these very off the wall um, uh, eccentric characters. Um, and every week there's a mystery of the week. Um, and you can also go into all sorts of, there's all sorts of iterations of this cliche in all sorts of ways. Uh, but by honing in on that, we've got to get a very clear, distinct thing that we're trying to emulate. Um, and it also means we can advertise it as being for two players, although we do have plenty of rules for playing it more. Um, I just thought that was something interesting to explore because there's only a couple of two-player RPGs out there. Um the uh, Cthulhu Confidential being the only one I can really think of. Mm. That was where I got the idea for this. Um, I had I was talking to an old woman who was probably in her 80s and was trying to understand what all this role-playing was about. And she's like, I don't have a group to play with. I just have my husband. And I'm like, okay, well, the only two-player game I know of that you can get in this convention is Cthulhu Conven- um, Confidential. And I don't think you really get what Cthulhu is, you know. Mm. Um and I was like, we need to have more games that are in more mainstream genres. And so that's one of the reasons like Partners is designed to not look like an RPG. It's designed to look like an old pulp novel. Um, it's the same sort of size and has this fake ratty cover, which um, uh, my designer, Matt, did an amazing job on. It also explores what I um, think is a fairly unique kind of approach to RPGs. But again, there's other people doing it. It's coming from the same idea as what they call Oracle Systems. Um, which sort of first appeared again with indie games back in the, about 20 years ago, where it was in a wicked age and things like that. It's basically the concept of random character generation, but ex- um, exploded to larger and larger systems. Um, so when you take a random character generation, you have the fun of, you don't know who you're going to play, you roll some dice and you create this story. You know, all of a sudden, um, you know, and depending on the, you know whether you've got a life path or system, you go, oh look, you know, I was born in this thing, and I'm going to be a fighter, and I, you know, speak this language, and I'm, I've got three sisters, and and I was given a magical sword when I was twelve, or whatever it is, and that to me is really fun. I really love character generation. I spent a long time growing up playing, just making up characters with really complicated systems, you know, with you know the life path system in Cyberpunk, uh, one of them. 20s 20 whatever it was called um uh, there was a cyberpunk 2020 i think it might have even been called but anyway it had a life path system and 
The Palladium games have these incredibly complicated character generation systems. And what I've been exploring and what we came up with in partners is basically using that sort of idea to resolve what happens in a scene. So instead of one player's the GM and the other player says, well, I want to go into the bar and talk to the bartender, everyone's playing and they draw cards from a deck and the scene will tell you where you are what's going on, what the clue is you've just found, and even who it might point to. And then what you do is with that knowledge, with the scene set, then you fill in the blanks. So you're not so much making choices as getting offers. Um, If we go back to a theater sports option, instead of like, you know, oh, I'm playing me trying to figure out what a detective to do. I've been told that I'm this detective who I have made Um, And I'm told that this scene is in a bar and there's going to be a fight. And, you know, the clue that we're going to find is about DNA. And then it's jump in and go. And that to me is really, really interesting. And it it takes away the kind of tactical solving part of RPGs, which always feels like it slows slows us down from story. Where we have to figure out, okay, well, where is the story likely to be? What would, a, what would a natural place for the solution to this mystery to be? What would my character do? Are there goblins in the next room or whatever it is? That's a very, that's using my player brain to solve a mystery. And I really want to use my creative brain and go, right, you know, what's interesting about this scene and how do we bring out the drama of it? Um, and this is, as I say, it's nothing new. I also um, most of this was inspired by a game called uh, Primetime Adventures and also Smallville, which is a Cortex game. And both of those have that same idea that you go into a scene not really knowing what's going to happen and the cards determine what what will happen and you react. So you don't even know what your character's going to do. And I think that's really fascinating to me. And I've used it in all sorts of games in different ways in my previous games as well. Um, so in Primetime Adventures, for example... Every scene is basically a dramatic scene where one character is having their character tested and the cards you draw determine how you react and whether you get what you want and whether your base or instincts get triggered. And it can be one, you know, you can get all of these different combinations. So you can get what you want and still be be your worst self, but you can get what you want and be your noble self and you're not sure which one of these things is going to happen. And um, played some really amazing games of that, of Primetime Adventures and Smallville, and that really helped me develop this idea that I'd rather not know what my character's going to do until the dice or the cards tell me. Mm. That means I find out as I go along what my character is doing and cares about as opposed to trying to solve it as a puzzle um, and figure out what I might do. And, yeah, I think, as as I say, it's there, but it's really interesting to me and it could be done so much more. And it works really well with mysteries because we know the format very well. And we um, understand the logic of here comes a clue, and it, but it takes away the whole problem of either the GM knows the answer or the players just make up something that fits. Um, in this case, you get these bits of evidence and you have to go, oh, okay, now the rules have told us who's guilty and we've got to figure out how this all fits together. Um, but we're surprised as well. We, we, we actually have a moment at the end where we don't know who did it because it's the last card that you deal out that tells you which of the four suspects is guilty. And then you have that moment, just like when watching television, where you're like, oh, of course. 
which you can't get if one person knows the solution. Um, you're just trying to solve what they're thinking. So I'm really happy with the way that kind of Oracle throw ideas, throw offers mechanic works with mysteries in a really interesting and possibly unique way. So just like you were saying that this game is mostly catered and structured for two players, although there are rules in it that you can change it for three or one. Even more, even more. We, we, you oh, can even more. Play, you can play with, with plenty. You can play with up to six quite easily. But as this is something that's like, it's mostly structured for two players, and that's yep. kind of like the main theme of it, is two players, there's the wild card and the straight shooter. Those are like the two classes, sort of. And those are, yep. like you said, based on the tropes of that uh, television genre. Can you talk about the challenges you might have went through in designing an RPG where, for the most part, you're not designed it as a, air quotes, traditional RPG of like five or six people would play, but for the most part, it's structured mostly for two players. So what challenges did you go through, if any, in creating this? I mean, one of the big things I, I, I always had as a question mark is, does anybody want this? You know, I wrote the whole thing and I actually spent about six months or so after finishing it going, do we kickstart this? Do we even publish it? Does anyone care? And uh, we've been very gratified that, that some people do. You know, we sold, we had 600 backers and that was really nice. And the challenge, I think, was that there was enough meat on the bones for things to, for, for, to help you create the story. Because a lot of the time when you're role-playing, you get to take time off. Like the GM is always working to some extent, but if one player's asking questions and the other players aren't, you can just sort of drift a little bit. And I think that was something that was really cons a part of my thoughts is with, like, this is quite intense because you're either listening or you're talking. Um, and so I was keen to make sure that the rules were really helpful, that they were giving you a lot of information and not just going, here's something vague that might be happening. Um, and also to give you a real key of that dynamic. And that's why we chose that sort of straight shooter wildcard dynamic is that it means that you know what your role is in the scene very clearly. So you get to be, you know, it's like, right, I'm the straight shooter. I'm going to be buttoned down. I just have to be annoyed at you. And you just have to be annoyed at me for being annoyed, for being boring. And, and that helps you um, deal with the just like, oh, God, we have to just talk to each other. Um, and, and that seems to sort of answer some of that question. Um, the um, proof in the pudding is that, you know, we had we had some really great play tests of it, and um, and hopefully we'll be seeing more and more of it. So in this game, use like you said a deck of cards for play. Was there ever a point, or was that scrapped from the very beginning? Was there ever a point where you considered using dice, or when was it that you decided, yes, we're going to use a deck of cards for this? That makes the most sense for this particular kind of game. Yeah, I think cards came pretty early. Um, I think actually, yeah, it would have been first thing. Probably because in my the role playing game that I'd just written before that is Relics, uh, which is about um, playing angels in the modern day, and we use a tarot deck for that. And what I did a lot of with Relics was random generation of characters, and also plots um, and things like that. So I'd got almost every one of my things was like producing a list of you know, something for every all the four suits in a tarot deck or all the um, 22 uh, major arcana. There's just tables like that all through relics. So 
it was on my mind that you know you get a lot of you can get a lot of interesting results um, if you have tables of 13 and tables of four. Uh, and so once I started just sort of writing down, I made a list of like what are the different types of evidence that pops up in in TV you know um, crime dramas and stuff. And I realized I had a you know I was getting to a list that was about 10, 11. Oh, okay, yeah, this is 13. That's going to work out. Um, and yeah, that just sort of jumped out at me. I like cards. I I play a lot of card games, like like classic card games, like bridge and poker. So um, it fit really well. And then when then the word wild card came along, and I was like, oh, there you go. So besides the work on your own game, like Partners and Others, you've also worked as a freelance writer for Warhammer, Shadow of the Demon Lord, Vampire the Masquerade, and Others. Can you talk about maybe the joys, but maybe, if any, the challenges to creative writing when you're writing within someone else's world compared to your own created world where you don't really have rules or uh, stipulations? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, a, a really big factor. Um, fairly early on in my freelance career, I, I started in Warhammer, which I knew back to front, and then I moved on to working on Vampire, and um, I'd only just got into Vampire. That was the the second version of it, which was called The Requiem. And I had to do a lot of reading before I could even get started. And they don't pay you for that part. You know, you only get paid for the words. And it was sometimes hard to go, oh, hang on, I've missed the tone here a little bit. Or, um, yeah, that joke doesn't fit. Um, if you know a setting really well, it's it's less restrictive because you just can fall into the language and your mind comes up with the right kind of ideas. It's 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 more about familiarity uh, than restriction, and that was one of the reasons I guess that I wrote relics because I spent a, a while doing working on things that I didn't know that well, and I thought you know this would be so much easier if I just had my own setting, um, and it was good to experiment and make my own you know really big setting like that. Um, yeah, so it really depends on your familiarity and of with the setting and. You know, just how much you really like it and how passionate you are about it, I think. I think if you really love a setting and a story that goes with it, like I love working on Warhammer, and it is sometimes, you know, a bit of work where I have to go, oh, hang on, I have to check a few source books to make sure this is correct. But matching the tone and the, the themes of Warhammer comes so naturally to me that it's just, it's some, because I've played Warhammer my entire life and I've worked on it for so long. But if I had to go back to, say, Shadow of the Demon Lord, I'd have to immerse myself in it. It's not far from Warhammer, but I'd have to read a bit more and get back into it. Um, so, yeah, the, the challenge is more about is, a, is familiarity with, with that world um, mm. uh, as opposed to the restrictions. Um, Makes sense. And that's kind of interesting that... With Warhammer, there was an established universe that you knew about, but with something like Shadow of the Demon Lord, which, first of all, amazing game. Um, it is, yeah. Very great game. That's something that I try to recommend to people to try to get them off D&D into a different fantasy genre, even though it's yeah, a little dark. Yeah, great first step. Yeah, great first step. Does everything D&D does, but better and simpler and faster and more interesting. Oh, by far, yeah. And I like how it's like themed around basically one-shot adventures instead of just long plays. So yeah. for conventions, that could be a lot easier. But with Shadow of the Demon Lord, 
that universe is like constantly expanding with the different expansions they're putting out. So when you were working on that, um, was it difficult to write in that universe in that it was a new universe, but also one that was constantly being updated? That was definitely a challenge. And the lore is is less well-established. In some ways, like Warhammer, although there's tons and tons of it, you can get onto sort of online or, or just go, look, I need the exact year that Town X was founded and someone will have written it down and, you know, it's there, whereas it was a bit harder sometimes to go, oh, hang on. In this book, it's got, it just kind of blush, brushes over some of this and I've gone with that, but then it's a bit, it's more detailed over there. So that was a bit more of, of work. Uh, in that sense, um, because it, it it was new and it was it was um, just coming out, but it was also interesting because it meant I got to write the first drafts, and that's the real fun as well. Like the 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 nature of the God of the Dead and the, and the underworld. I I you know there were some very brief ideas that Robert laid down, but I got to really make that my own. Um, there's a part of the world that, that no one had really written about. And I got to go, right, this is exactly what this is like. And, you know, in 20 years, if it's still around that setting, then people will still be using my version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the downside of Warhammer is that it's, you know, I've, I've managed to put a bit of my stamp on some of it, which is lovely, but I also know that, you know, I'm this tiny line in a huge, uh, I guess, like fossil record, you know, of, 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 built up accretions of, of world. So I can't go, you know what? Now the, the vampires can do this, you know, uh, and nobody's going to be like, you know, that really felt, you know, unique and special and different. And that's Steve's bit over there. Um, so there's trade-offs, you know, um, and, and it is, it is, it is a lot of fun to really be in that early stage and get to paint. Going back to partners, Something I enjoy about this game when I was reading it was that not only is it structured around the themes of like a buddy cop show, but also around writing the show too, which is really cool. Yeah. And that really appealed to me as someone that does a lot of like creative writing, like screenwriting. With this, players make a show Bible and they write the episodes as they go with twists and arc to make an interesting episode of the play session. So how much research for you was done into screenwriting and plot structure for this game quite a bit but not so much specifically except that it's been a lifelong passion of mine i think you know i mentioned that one of the, the books is uh, dedicated to um stephen carroll stephen carell i think it's pronounced actually who um famously wrote lots of these shows in, in the 80s and 90s and um, was one of the reasons i wanted to be a writer and i just i watched so much tv and i studied it and, um, you know, di- I, I didn't do an English degree, but I, I did a lot of, I did high level English at school and I just was really interested in breaking things down and breaking plots down. And, um, yeah, it's just something that I'm, uh, I've always been fascinated by stories and storytelling. And so this was sort of a lifelong, um, passion of me just going, right, that's that trope, that's that trope, that's hanging a lamppost on it, um, to the absolute furation, you know, annoyance of the people I'm watching TV with. Um, <laughs> but I'll be like, you know, just, um, but the, the, the wonderful thing about, you know, about partners is that once I, I, you know, had the fun of going through and breaking down, like we have, as well as the lead two characters, we have these um, supporting characters. And now whenever I'm watching, you know, a new 
um, mystery show, I'm always going, right, there's the there's a straight shooter, there's the wild card, there's the oddball, there's the superior. I think that's just something that has always been part of how I process media. Um, I like to take it apart and go, why does this work? How does this work? Mm. Um, and um, hopefully I've been trying to do a little bit of screenwriting myself and um, and I've written a lot of fiction. And, yeah, I'd love to sort of – that's one of the next you know goals for the next half of my life is to try to actually do some writing for television if I can. So how was playtesting for this game? As a two-player RPG was it just you sitting down with another player and then just going through it and learning and uh, critiquing, changing the game with someone else? Or did you get two players, sit them down, and you watch them play? How was, or maybe you did both? Did, we, we did do both. You know, a lot of it was, was me running it in my head, you know, which isn't a full test, but as so much of it was, does X generate Y? You know, there was a lot of that just me going, Let's make up ten different shows and just see if every time it's interesting and every time we get you get useful clues. And then, yeah, we did one. Yeah, you know, we did some tests with me and one other person. We did one test where I was just watching other players, and um, uh, it it all it all came from that. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was it was mostly me or me and one other person, and then we did a, we did um, a little bit of testing a couple of sessions with, with just me watching others um, and seeing how they handle it, um, which is really important, of course, as well, making sure those that the rules are clear and, and that people know where to find information and put it on the sheet. And, um, uh, yes, um, it did, in fact, make playtesting easier because we just didn't need as many people. I think that's part of why I decided to go ahead with it because especially during COVID and stuff, um, you know, it's just harder and harder to get, get four or five people in a room. The game I'm working on now is designed to be really short, really compact. Um, you, you can play it, again, with two to six, but it's designed to be fast. So, again, we can get it play-tested fast. And it's like testing relics, like, it was so hard to test the campaign because we couldn't even get people together for that long. Um, we had to do a lot of it online, and, and um, most of it was done. Most of the testing for that game was done at conventions. So for inspiring game writers out there who are struggling or maybe preparing to finish their first RPG um, that's going to be releasing to the public, what would be your number one tip or trick that you would advise to writers out there on getting published and getting their work out there? I think the, the most important thing is to start small. The most thing that I see holding back uh, RPG writers is that they they are, you know, waist deep in a 300 page manuscript about a really complicated world with a really complicated system and they can't finish it. And, and the more they work on it, the further the end gets away. And, and so what I want you to do is like one thing that really helped me get started was to do things like they don't have it anymore, but they had, um, uh, you know, uh, it was called game kitchen where you had to write a 3000 RPG based on random prompts. They have the 200 word RPG competition. Last year, I did a thing where we had to put RPGs on the back of a business card. All of these things help you practice finishing a game, even if it's a really small game. And the thing is, early on, you start lots of games and you get lots of practice starting. So you get good at starting, but you don't have any practice at finishing because you're writing these enormous things that you can't see the end of. So 
write small games, pick something tiny, give yourself a limit, you know, 200 page, 200 words, a thousand words, a, a single page, you know, like we said before, Grant show, it's great one page games, a business card, something, or I have to do whatever I have in a week. That's the end. And I'd have to walk away. Something like that to get something finished and get it in front of somebody else. Because not only do you, yes, you have to learn how to finish something, but also have to learn how to do that next step, which is go here, read this, play this. Um, and that can be the scariest part of all. But once you've done that, really ready to move on to the next thing. And you can use whatever, whether they give you a feedback or not. So, yeah, give yourself a limit. Finish things, finish small things and get them in front of people. Even if it's just putting them on the web and tweeting it out or whatever. Just that fact of going, here it is, world, is really good for you. Thank you very much for talking to me, Steve, about partners and also just about the RPG world and creation. Uh, it was great to talk to you about this. Um, the episodes of Partners will be out very soon. But where can people find your work, um, partners and the other RPGs you've worked on? Where can people find you in general? Yep. Um, so we are Tin Star Games. That's tin like the metal, like the thing the sheriff wears. Uh, so tinstargames.com, uh, tinstargames.itch.com. Um, both of those will have uh, places where you can download our games um, and buy the digital versions and um, links to where to get the physical copies as well. And we're Tinstar Games on Facebook. We are Tinstar Games with a singular digit one at the end on Twitter. So that's at Tinstar Games one on Twitter, where I'm pretty active. And we have a Discord as well, um, which is Tinstar Games. Um, so all over the internet. We have an Instagram as well, which is Tinstar Games. So um, you should be able to find us if you can remember the Tinstar Games. <laughs> And uh, to make it easier for our audience, I will post a link to Tinstar Games' uh, website. So if you want to check out uh, Steve's games, uh, partners, and the others, there'll be a link in the description of this podcast below. Uh, thank you very much, Steve, for coming on and talking to me about RPGs. Thank you for having me. And for our audience out there, thank you for listening to this episode. We have a lot of great episodes coming up of interviews with creators, but also a lot of games that we'll be playing. Um, I just finished Blurred Lines, which is a solo RPG based on the Giallo film genre, which was a lot of fun to do. And also besides Partners, we have uh, Fiasco is coming up very soon. And we're also going to be playing, speak at Tin Star Games, we'll be playing um, a western rpg very soon but that will be spoiled the name of it in a future episode thanks everyone for listening and we'll hear from you next time on the beer and pretzel podcast